said that Christians ought to be like telescopes and not microscopes. Right? And what he's trying to say by that is, now both a telescope and a microscope both magnify things, and yet there's a very distinct difference between them in what they do. That is, that both make things appear bigger, and yet there's an important distinction. A, a microscope essentially helps you see something that is really small. Whereas a telescope magnifies by helping you see something that is infinitely huge. Right? A, a microscope takes a tiny little amoeba and it makes it look much bigger than it really is. On the other hand, a telescope takes what, what looks to the naked, unaided eye as something really small, like a little twinkle, twinkle little star in the night sky, and helps you see it for what it really is, which is massively, infinitely huge. Our aim today is to magnify Jesus. And in saying that and in doing that, by that, we don't mean, as in a microscope, where we take little old Jesus and somehow stretch him to fit some kind of bigger-than-he-is proportion. Instead, what we mean is that rather like a telescope, we want to try and glimpse him who is infinitely huge. That often to our unaided naked eye seems like just some small part of our life just some weekend thing to think about on a Sunday, and see him for the dimensions and proportions and grandeur and greatness and glory of who he actually is. That's our aim today. Now, if you're a Christian here today, you have no problem with us making much of Jesus. In fact, when you're thinking in your sane, rational mind, your great desire is to be a telescope. That is, that all of your life might display the greatness and hugeness and glory of Jesus in all the parts of your life and for all the world to see. But on the other hand, if you're here and you're not a Christian, there may be an honest part of you which just wonders, why are Christians so committed to making such a big deal about Jesus? Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus, the man born in Bethlehem. Jesus, the one you could see and touch and be around. Why are Christians so obsessed with Jesus? Why is it maybe that they can't even, like so many in the world, see him like a prophet or respect him as a good teacher, admire him as a moral leader, follow him, if you will, as a spiritual guide? But no, why are Christians set on putting him over and above all things, worshiping him and giving him universal and cosmic importance? Moreover, why are Christians not even just content that they believe in Jesus, but they have the audacity to think that you should believe in Jesus? In fact, they would go so far as to say everybody should believe in Jesus. Why are Christians that way? Well, this morning... I want to submit to you that one of the reasons is Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. The passage that Shainu just read for us. That one of the reasons why a Christian ought to be that way, must be that way, is because of Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. Because what this passage is, is sort of like a telescope. Right? What this passage is, is a lens by which we can look into the heavens and see Jesus as we ought to. That is, that your naked, unaided eye can't rightly see Jesus. 
Your naked, unaided eye will look into the heavens and Jesus will be much smaller than he really is. And so you need Colossians 1, 15-17 to be the lens by which you see Jesus that you might rightly see him. That your eye might be helped in seeing him for all the greatness and grandeur and glory that he is. And so that's why we want to look now at Colossians 1, 15-17. Remember with me, That Paul, the apostle, St. Paul is writing this church to a young, small church plant like ours. And he's writing to them who had started believing in Jesus, who are now being told that Jesus is a good start, but they need something else and something more if they're going to be really complete. If they're going to be mature, robust, varsity level Christians, well then Jesus is sort of a good start, the ground level, the basic building blocks, the ABCs, but you need something else if you're going to be really mature. And what Paul is convinced of in this letter, and what Paul is trying to convince the Colossians of through this letter, is that none of them see Jesus big enough. That their view of him is drastically too small. And truth be told, Sammar wrote, hear me, the same thing is true for us. That every single one of you, every one of you that can hear my voice, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, None of you see Jesus as you ought to. I don't either. That none of us see him for how big, how infinitely huge, how glorious and grand he really is. And so we need Colossians 1 to be a lens by which we might rightly see him. That which we might rightly discern who he is. And so we come now to this section, what may be one of the most majestic parts of the whole letter. In fact, in this section, Paul, as we saw the last few weeks, has just finished praying for the Colossians, thanking God on behalf of the Colossians. And now he switches from almost prose to poetry, from almost just lines of rhetoric and propositions to song. In fact, most scholars think that 15 to 20 is a hymn. Either he's quoting a hymn that someone else wrote or he composed it on the fly himself, but he breaks into almost song as he starts talking about Jesus. And so what we want to do is consider perhaps the first stanza of that hymn. We'll get to verse 17. And so let me read it for you. We just heard it, but hear it with me again. And I mean that. Don't let a single word fall to the ground. Let everyone hit your ears, go into your mind, and down to your heart. Hear God's word in Colossians 1. Here's what it says. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him. All things hold together. It is a majestic three verses that if you let them sit on your eyes can give you a vision for Jesus bigger and better than you had before. So, we're looking through the telescope of Colossians 1 in these three verses and now we gaze that telescope into the heavens and we're twisting things and adjusting things that are fuzzy and Jesus is beginning to come in view. And the first thing that the lens helps us see as we begin to see Jesus is that Jesus 
is God. The first thing that the lens helps us see is that Jesus is God. You see, what the telescope won't let you do, what Paul won't let you do, what the letter to the Colossians won't let you do is to see Jesus as just a prophet. It won't let you just see him as a teacher or a moral leader or an enlightened one or a spiritual guide because in talking about Jesus, Paul comes right out of the gate. He leads off with telling you he is the image of the invisible God. He starts off in the first part of verse 15 by saying he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, listen to me. Remember who Paul is talking to. Paul is talking to a church filled with Jews and with Gentiles. Gentiles meaning not Jews. Gentiles who in that day would have had lots of idols and lots of gods and lots of representations of these various deities. And he's speaking to them both. He's speaking to the Jews who would have known very well about the invisible God. Right? So when he says he is the image of the invisible God, they would have immediately known about the invisible God. In fact, the first half of your Bibles, the Old Testament, always taught that God cannot be seen. No man can see God and live is what the scriptures taught. So they knew all about God being invisible. But when he talked to the Gentiles, they knew all about images. They had images of gods all over the place. Their cities were littered with images. In fact, one city Paul went to had an image to a god with the inscription that says, to the unknown god. As in, just in case there's a deity out there that we don't know about, here's an image for him also. And now Paul is coming to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And to the Jews he's saying, the invisible God who the scripture says dwells in unapproachable light has made himself visible. And he's coming to the Gentiles and saying, the one and only true God has one image, and that image is Jesus Christ. So he's saying to Jew and Gentile, he is the image of the invisible God. Jew and Gentile, he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. I mean, and just think of what that would have sounded like in the first century. Paul is literally telling a bunch of Jews and Gentiles, that the Jewish carpenter born in Bethlehem, that grew up in Nazareth, that people talked to, that you could shake his hand, that he ate and drank, he bled and died, that Jewish carpenter is the image of the invisible God. The man who grew up in Nazareth is the image of the invisible God. That word image there carries this idea of he's the exact representation of. He's the snapshot of. Jesus is the snapshot of God. So that if you could get a Polaroid big enough and you clicked it on God, by the time it came out, it would look like Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is why when Jesus is talking to his disciples in John's Gospel, and one of the disciples goes to Jesus and he says, just show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Now, I want you to think about his question. Just show us the Father and it will be enough for us. In any other setting, that would be a wonderful question. A commendable question. I mean, can you think of a better thing than just show us God? That's what we want to see. Show us the Father. For example, among the Jews, one of their heroes was a man named Moses. And in the highlight of his life, 
the high point, the mountaintop of his life, was that he requested, God, show me your glory. And it's recorded in the scriptures as this wonderful request that this man wanted to see God so bad that he asked God, show me your glory. And yet what was commended to Moses was chastised to this disciple. Because when this disciple says, just show us the Father and it'll be enough for us, rather than being commended, he's chastised by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus says, how can you say, show us the Father? Philip, do you not yet believe who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Any other time, the question would have been great, but, but Philip is standing before God asking to see God. And Jesus says, how can you say, show us the Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Or the writer to Hebrews in, later in the New Testament, he'll say this, He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That is, all that God is, Jesus is. There's no part of God that Jesus doesn't have. His exact nature is in Jesus. So if God is love, then all that love is in Jesus. If God is merciful, then all that mercy is in Jesus. If God is powerful or glorious or full of wrath, then all of it, to every last bit of it, infinitely is in Jesus. All of God squeezed into the body of that man from Nazareth, Jesus Christ. All of God is in Him. This is why, if you keep reading in Colossians 1, in verse 19, Paul will go on to say, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. Now, now you put that together. The Colossians are being told, they've got Jesus, but He's not enough. And if you want to be really spiritually complete, if you want to have all of God, you need something else. And Paul's response is, all of God is in Jesus. What else could you possibly have? What else could you possibly want? All of God dwells in Jesus. You have Jesus. Jesus is in you. What more is there? Because there's nothing in Jesus that's lacking what is in God. He is the image of the invisible God. So then, if you're here, and you've got this wrestling heart, this spiritual inquiry, you want to know God, you want to know more about God, then Colossians would say, aim this telescope into the heavens. Let Colossians 1, 15 be your lens and see Jesus because when you see Jesus, you are seeing God. When you come to know Jesus, you are coming to know God. When you have a relationship with Jesus, you have a relationship with God because He is the image of the invisible God. But Paul focuses the telescope a bit more and as, and as the blurriness begins to go and we see more clearly who Jesus is, we begin to see not only is Jesus above all things as God, but he goes on to say that Jesus is above all creation as creator. Not only is Jesus above all things as God, he is also above all creation as its creator. That's what he goes on to say. In 15, in the second half, after saying he is the image of the invisible God, he goes on to say, and Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that mean? 
If you're paying attention, if you're reading this carefully, there should almost be a little bit of tension in your heart as you begin to wonder, what on earth does that mean? What, what does it mean to call Jesus the firstborn of all creation? It almost sounds like Paul is saying he's the first thing made. Right? It, it almost sounds like he's the first thing to come out in creation. Now, th there's a good chance for some of you, this summer you'll get a knock on your door, and there'll be a man or a woman there from the Jehovah's Witness. And if he knocks on that door, if she knocks on the door, there may even be a chance that they point you to Colossians 1.15 and say, there it is. Don't you see? Jesus is great. He is big. He is high. He's the first of all the creation. He's the first thing that Jehovah God made. Now, when you hear that, don't panic. In fact, what you'll say back is, my dear friend, this heresy you are bringing to me has been around since the third century. Since the 4th century. In fact, way back then, a man named Arius went about teaching that Jesus was the first thing created by God. And he was sort of the highest of all the created beings. And as far back, I mean, we're not talking a gathering last year. As far back as 325 A.D., a council of the church fathers gathered together at a place called Nicaea to hash this out and to call this a heresy and to repudiate this teaching. In fact, from that council at Nicaea came about a creed that you and I have often repeated here at Seven Mile Road, right? We've often said this creed as an explanation of our faith because what they formulated way back in 325 was this is who Jesus was. So part of the creed is he is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This isn't last week's discovery. There's, there's not some new thing. It's all just repackaged. No, nothing new under the sun. And as far back as 325 AD, we've known Jesus Christ is, is the firstborn of all creation. And that doesn't mean that he was somehow made. In fact, in, if you keep reading in the passage, in verse 17, Paul himself will go on to say that he is before all things. Not the first of all the things that were made, but before them. In verse 18, he'll go on to say that Jesus is the beginning. That is, that there was nothing before him. He is pre-existent. He is without beginning. So then what does Paul mean when he calls Jesus firstborn of all creation? Well, as you read through the scriptures, what you'll find is that that phrase, firstborn, isn't always or only about order of birth but rather is often about ranking, about supremacy, about priority, about place. Uh, let me give you an example. In Psalm 89, God is speaking about David, the king, and his intentions to make David great on the earth. And speaking of King David in verse 27, he says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, God's talking about David, and he says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, if you know the story of David, what you'd know is that David was not the firstborn. In fact, he was the lastborn. Literally, his father had seven sons. He was the seventh of them, the lastborn. And yet God here refers to David as the firstborn. Why? Because the rest of the verse fleshes it out. I'm going to make him highest of all the kings. This is not about birth order, but about ranking. That is, that David will be above all the other kings of the earth. You see that in other places as well. In Genesis 41, a man named Joseph has two sons. Manasseh, his firstborn son, and Ephraim, his secondborn son. 
But then when the prophet Jeremiah speaks of this in chapter 31, God says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim's the secondborn baby, and yet God says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Why? Because this isn't about birth order. This is about prominence. This is about supremacy. This is about who's at the top over all the others. You see, the firstborn was the son that got everything, that got all the father's inheritance. He was the one who was basically equal now to the father. And so the Colossians who heard Paul would have known that when Paul said, Jesus is firstborn of all creation, that he was speaking of supremacy, of preeminence, of priority, of place, about Jesus being over and above all creation. And Paul fleshes this out. He fleshes out why is Jesus supreme, preeminent, above all creation? Why is he firstborn over all creation? Well, he tells us in verse 16. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul's saying, here's why he's firstborn, preeminent over all creation. It's because he made all things. He's the creator of creation. He is the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made. Don't let that gloss over or pass you by. Stop there for a second. Jesus made all things. Even you who do trust in Jesus, even you who do know him, who do worship him, just consider that Paul is saying to the first century, to Jews and Gentiles, the Jewish carpenter in Nazareth, the one who, if you cut him, you could see his blood, that man is the one who made all things. And they were supposed to believe that. That man you could see and touch, you could push and he'd fall down. That man is the one who made all things. And even you, even you who worship Jesus, would you consider that? I have no doubt that you have seen Jesus, considered Jesus as your Savior. But have you ever considered Jesus also as your Maker? That the man born in Bethlehem is the one who made you. That Jesus is your creator. He's not just the one who saved you, but is the one who made you. It wasn't as if Jesus was taking a long nap and God had to wake him up at Christmas and say, finally, something for you to do. Go get them. Go down there. But rather that Jesus was with the Father from before the beginning and it was by him and through him that all things that has been made was made. Jesus is the one who made us. And Paul goes on to specify what he made. He made things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He made whether it's thrones or powers or dominions or authorities, all things were made by him. That words of dominion, rulers, authorities, you'll see that again in chapter 2. And what he's talking about is sort of the spiritual realm, the realm of angels and demons and heavenly hosts. And Paul is saying even that realm was made by Jesus. And part of the reason he's saying that is as you read the letter of Colossians, you get the impression that someone is telling the Colossians, Jesus is good, but if you want real spiritual power against the dark forces, the invisible world, the realm of heaven, the invisible things, then you need something else. And Paul's response is, Jesus is the one who even made that. 
What, what more do you need if you have the maker of even that realm? And he's not only supreme because he made all things. He goes on in verse 17 to say, and he's the one who sustains all things. L listen to verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? All things hold together. That is from the largest planet in its orbit to the smallest atom and molecule. Everything is sustained by Jesus. Hebrews goes on to say, it's by His power, the power of His Word, that He holds all things together. I'm not a scientist, but I've read enough to know that scientists describe our universe as a finely tuned universe. And what they mean by that is that the universe is so precise that if things were off by one degree, one way or another, if the, the Earth's axis was one degree one way or the other, if gravity was one of the smallest units of measure, stronger or less, I mean, nothing in the universe would exist. And even the strongest and wisest of scientists have said, this universe seems like it has been finely tuned for life. And Colossians is adding his voice to say, it is that way because Jesus is the one sustaining it. All things are being held together even now by Jesus. I, I want you to know, breath is coming into your lungs and out because Jesus at this moment, by the word of his power, is sustaining you. So that if for a moment Jesus stopped, if he let off the gas pedal, if he stopped speaking the word of his power, for even one moment, you and I would be done. He is over all creation, firstborn because he's the one who made it, and he's the one who sustains it. J Jesus is, is the one who sustains all things. And then there's one more thing I want you to see. Because Paul doesn't end there. He says not only were all things made by Jesus and through Jesus and upheld together by Jesus, but he also says, and all things were made for Jesus. Not only were all things made by Jesus and through Jesus, but they were made for Jesus. That is that Jesus is not just the creator who got things going. And Jesus is not just the sustainer that's keeping it going. Jesus is himself the end to where it's all going. He, he's the goal. He's the point. He's the reason why everything that exists, exists. All things were made for Jesus. Or that word could be translated towards Jesus. All things were made by Jesus and towards Jesus. For Jesus. He's the point. He's the goal for which everything that has been made was made. I want you to hear that. That is that the highest purpose of everything that exists is for the glory of Jesus. That everything that exists exists to make much of Jesus. As in the billions of stars in our galaxy, let alone the billions of galaxies that have billions of stars. As in every drop of countless amounts of water. As in all things were made to display His glory. Everything. You know that there's not just apples. I, I read this week, there's 7,500 varieties of apples. Why? Right? Like, not just Red Delicious and Granny Smith and some golden ones. 7,500 varieties of apples. I went to the aquarium this past week. 
20,000 different varieties of butterflies. Couldn't have just made one. 20,000 different varieties of them. Why? I would commend you today to go home and Google Louis Giglio Indescribable. It's this preacher that gave this presentation about the universe we live in. It would be worthwhile for you to see it. In fact, let me parrot some of the things that he says. In just considering this universe that we're in. In his talk, Louis Giglio says, you know, scientists often now say there must be life on other places because this universe is way too big if it's just for us. And, and they're actually right. right. If the entire universe is for our life, this universe is way too big just for our life. For example, think of this. When God said, let there be light, and light appeared. Well, light came streaming out, and the speed of light, pretend you're back in high school, the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second. That's how fast light travels. 186,000 miles a second. In fact, it's so fast that in one second, light travels around the earth seven times. Seven times around the earth in one second because light is going 186,000 miles a second. Well, in this universe we're talking about, and we keep calling it the known universe because every time we build a bigger telescope, there's more that we see, right? So we haven't built a big enough telescope to understand how big it is, but the biggest one, the known universe we have, the unit of measure we need to use to talk about the size of the universe is what's called a light year. Now, what's a light year? A light year is if you travel at the speed of light 186,000 miles a second, for one year at that speed, that's what one light year is. And a light year is the smallest unit of measure we can use when talking about the universe. Right? A foot's not going to help you. A yard, a mile is not going to help. You need 186,000 miles a second for a whole year for you to have one light year, which is the smallest unit of measure we can use when talking about the vastness of our universe. That's 5.88 trillion miles. One light year. That's what we need when we talk about our universe. Now, in our universe, from what scientists know, we live in one galaxy. In his talk, he calls this sort of our subdivision. And in the universe, there are billions of galaxies. We live in one of them. In this one galaxy, there are billions of stars. And that's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. Billions of stars. In fact, every second... A new star is being born bigger than the sun. Billions of stars in our one galaxy, and there are billions of galaxies. We live in one small galaxy. Our subdivision is called the Milky Way. And in our galaxy alone, if you wanted to go from one end to the other, sort of New York to California, it would take you 100,000 light years. That is, you would get out the front door, and you would go 186,000 miles a second, and you would travel at that speed for 100,000 years, and you'd finally get to California. You'd finally get to the edge of our subdivision. Mind you, that's one subdivision of billions of galaxies in the universe. And in our subdivision, okay, well, in our at least neighborhood, we must be the prominent ones, right? Uh, 
Our solar system, you think of that. Our solar system revolves around the sun. The sun is not even the biggest star in our galaxy, let alone in other galaxies. The sun is not even the biggest, baddest, meanest star in our galaxy, let alone other ones. The, the sun is so big, you could fit a million Earths into the sun. And it's not even the biggest in our galaxy. Scientists tell us it would take the gross national product of the United States for 27 million years for Pico to power the sun for one second. That's what God, by the way, thought up. Right? This is not some weak God. He thought up this raging ball of fire called the sun. He spoke a word and it came into being, and it's not even the biggest one. Well, our solar system goes around that sun. And if you think about our solar system, sort of our cul-de-sac within the subdivision, within our galaxy, the relative size would be a quarter compared to the North American continent. So if I dropped a quarter in North America and told you to find it, that would be the equivalent of you trying to find our solar system in just our galaxy, let alone the billions of galaxies in the universe. Let me tell you one more. In 1990, they took a picture. It's been a very famous picture. They sent out this space probe called the Voyager. The Voyager went 3.7 billion miles away from the Earth, and then it was commanded to turn around and take a snapshot of our solar system. Sort of just our cul-de-sac within the subdivision within the universe. Just a snapshot of our solar system. And so this thing started to take a series of pictures because it can't just fit it into one. And it sent back over the course of months and months this image of just our solar system. It's become a famous picture. In fact, I'll show you this picture. That thing that I'm sure you want to frame on your wall, right, because of its beauty, is our entire subdivision, our neighborhood within the subdivision. That's the solar system. Now, I'm sure you can see where you are, right? Let me, let me point you an arrow so that you can see. That tiny, what's been called pale blue dot, is where you and I and every human being, every man, every woman, every child, Every story, every king, every pauper, every bit of property, every business, every company has lived on that, what one scientist called speck of dust, is where all of us have inhabited. And that's just a picture of our solar system within our subdivision, within billions of subdivisions, within the universe. Now, if this universe exists for us, then it's way too big. But Colossians will come and shout to us, I have good news. This universe does not exist for you. For all things were made by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. If the purpose of our universe is not you, but rather to make much of him and for the entire universe to shout how grand and glorious and great he is, then the universe is just the right size that it needs to be. And the more telescopes we build, the more we find it's even bigger than we thought. 
And, and the wonder of it all is the God who made a universe we don't even have equipment, technology, or minds to comprehend is the one that the prophet Isaiah says, he measures the universe with the span of his hand. That is, a span is the length from there to there. What we don't have a telescope big enough to show us is what God, the prophet Isaiah says, measures with the span of his hand. And Paul adds, he made all things, that is Jesus, by him, through him, and for him, so that the entire universe exists to show off the glory of Jesus. This is why I'm saying to you, none of us have seen Jesus as we ought. None of us have scratched the surface of his immense worth and value and grandeur and glory and greatness. This universe, just consider this for a second, brothers and sisters, as we close. Everything, everything, the sun and the moon and the billions of stars in the billions of galaxies, and every one of those 7,500 types of apples, and all 20,000 butterflies, and every molecule of water, and every atom of matter, everything that exists, exists for him. How much more also than the pinnacle of all this creation, which is you, and which is me. And think of the scandal of all this, that even the biggest star knows its maker. And yet you and I reject him. Even the biggest planet knows to orbit declaring the greatness of God. And yet how small are you and I compared to that? I mean, we're a speck of a speck. And yet you and I would stand despising him, rejecting him, rebelling against him, ignoring him, belittling him, pushing him off to one corner of our life, saving him for a thought on a Sunday once a week. You and I do that to the maker of all things. And the wonder of it is, how did he respond? Except that he came to the pale blue dot. That God squeezed himself into the speck, as literally a speck, that, that all of God squeezed into a cell to be multiplied many times over in the womb of a woman to be born into this world, that the God of all of this came to our pale blue dot. And when he came, he, he treated the sick among us and cured them and fed the hungry among us and forgave the sinners among us and lived a life of perfect obedience to the maker of all things until he bore your sin and mine, bore your rebellion and mine, bore your treason and mine, bore your belittling of him and mine. And think of this, the man born in Bethlehem, the Jewish carpenter of Nazareth, literally took our sins until he was placed on a tree that he created, until Nails made of the iron that he made were driven through his wrists and his feet. Until man whom he made killed him. This is how the God of this universe has responded to you and to me. That he cared enough for this pale blue dot. That he came for us. That he came for you. That he came for me. 
And the wonder of all of this is that the God who rules over this entire universe knows you. Down to the number of hairs on your head. Down to the cares and concerns of your soul even this day. I mean, the wonder of it, that that God knows about your finances. He cares about your rent. He's thinking about your headache. He cares about your son's spelling test. The God of this universe knows you, loves you, cares for you. So let the, the lens of Colossians 1 help you see Jesus in a way that you have not before. And the question I'd leave you with today is, what part of your life does not yet see Jesus for who he really is? And what difference would it make in your life if you began to see him rightly? Let's pray.